Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, November 16th. In today's news, police arrest 21 people amid violent clashes in D.C. between Trump supporters and opponents. President Trump's maximum pressure campaign against Iran is failing. And Kamala Harris's allies wonder, will she have real clout? But first, the big idea. The United States passed 11 million confirmed coronavirus cases on Sunday, just one week after the country hit 10 million cases. It's a testament to just how rapidly this virus is spreading. The first million cases took more than three months. This new wave has increased COVID hospitalization past the peaks seen earlier in April and then July. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer on Sunday announced sweeping new limits on gatherings for three weeks, including a ban on indoor dining at restaurants and bars and a halt to in-person classes at high schools and colleges. Washington Governor Jay Inslee also laid out a slew of new rules which prohibit indoor social gatherings with people outside one's own household, as well as indoor service at restaurants, bars, and more. New Mexico and Oregon also have ordered extensive new statewide shutdowns. Meanwhile, Trump coronavirus advisor Scott Atlas urged Michiganders on Sunday to, quote, rise up against the new restrictions imposed by the Democratic governor. Atlas later sought to clarify on Twitter that when he said rise up, he wasn't talking about violence. It's now been five months since President Trump attended a coronavirus task force meeting. Five months. As the president golfed yet again on Saturday and Sunday, the virus killed the parents of Raiden Gonzalez, a four-year-old boy in San Antonio. He's been taken in by his grandmother. El Paso right now is so overwhelmed by cases that inmates are being enlisted to assist the medical examiner with the overflow of corpses at the morgue. The prisoners are being paid $2 an hour to move bodies. D.C. reported another record new number of cases on Sunday. Tighter restrictions take effect in Virginia this morning. Some doctors are calling it quits under the stress of the pandemic. The Times reports this morning that thousands of medical practices have closed in the last six months. But in the states where the virus is spiking hardest, particularly in the upper Midwest, Republicans made substantial gains down ballot in this month's elections. Often they did so by campaigning against the very tools that scientists say will best help arrest the spread of the virus. Griff Whitty reports that victories in state and local races have allowed GOP leaders to claim a mandate for their let-it-rip approach to pandemic management, a so-called herd immunity mentality. They say that there should be personal responsibility instead of government intervention. As hospitals are overwhelmed and deaths surge, this is a philosophy that public health experts say will have deadly consequences this winter. In Iowa, cases have grown by nearly 180% in the last two weeks. The average daily death toll is well above its springtime peak. Yet Trump, who held mostly maskless rallies in Iowa, won the state by a large margin, as did Joni Ernst, the incumbent Republican senator who has also spoken out against restrictions. Republicans in North Dakota were rewarded by voters, with the party managing to deepen its dominance of state government, even as cases surged tenfold in the three months before Election Day. Next door in Montana, voters chose Greg Gianforte for governor. He was often photographed without a face mask and embraced maskless supporters while on the trail. Gianforte promised to roll back the state's restrictions in a bid to juice the economy. In my home state of Minnesota, the Republican majority leader of the state Senate, Paul Gazelka, said last night that he tested positive for COVID 
as Democrats called on him to resign for trying to hide a COVID outbreak on his side of the aisle. After several GOP senators and staff tested positive, fellow Republicans were notified about all the new cases. But the diagnoses were concealed from Democrats who had gathered alongside those same members for a special legislative session. The same Senate GOP keeps having votes to try to overturn the restrictions put in place by the Democratic governor. And now, this morning, the Minneapolis Fox affiliate is reporting that days before the outbreak in the GOP caucus, those same Republicans held a large in-person dinner party on November 5th at an event center with more than 100 attendees. Several of them now have COVID. And until the press broke that story, the venue had not been told what happened and that their waiters had been exposed. And it should go without saying, it doesn't have to be this way. The rest of the world is taking this more seriously, and they're figuring it out. While Americans contemplate not getting to see our families at Thanksgiving or Christmas, thousands of electronic music fans in Taiwan danced frenetically yesterday to thumping music at a big festival. The island of more than 23 million has now gone more than 200 days without reporting a single locally transmitted coronavirus infection, making it possible for that crowd to pack the makeshift arena like it was 2019. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, it was total mayhem here in D.C. on Saturday night. One person was stabbed and four police officers were injured, one seriously when a chemical was sprayed into his eye. For the better part of the day, police managed to keep supporters of Trump and his opponents apart, save for minor skirmishes during a so-called Stop the Steal rally. Tensions grew as the main march moved from Freedom Plaza to outside the Supreme Court. And as the final speeches ended, clashes turned into roving street fights around the city that left police struggling to keep up. Shortly before 8 p.m., members of the extremist group The Proud Boys and other diehard Trump supporters moved through downtown in the area of 12th and F Streets, northwest. At the same time, a group of counter-protesters moved north on 10th Street. The groups met head-on at H Street near 11th Street, just north of Metro Center, for those who know D.C. Police and riot gear rushed toward the fray, but not quickly enough to stave off a brawl involving dozens, including the Proud Boys, that left participants bloodied and one man stabbed three times in the back. He's seriously wounded and in the hospital this morning. One of my colleagues heard a Trump supporter yell, I came here to fight, just before the clash began. D.C. Police Chief Peter Newsom said on Sunday that people from both sides and from outside the region came into the city intent on clashing, and the police were put directly in the middle of it. In all, the police arrested 21 people, including a juvenile, on charges that include assault, disorderly conduct, and inciting violence. Eight firearms were seized, and five people were arrested on gun charges, including two who were linked to a Georgia-based militia group. The chief said that police found three additional firearms and a cache of ammunition in a hotel room registered to the two. Trump, who during that first debate in September refused to denounce the Proud Boys and instead urged them to stand back and stand by, relished in the mayhem. In one tweet on Sunday, Trump wrote, quote, Antifa scum ran for the hills today when they tried attacking the people at the Trump rally because these people aggressively fought back. The lame duck president also tweeted for D.C. police to, quote, get going, do your job and don't hold back, referring to arresting counter protesters. Trump accused D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser of not doing her job as he shared a video 
of a man being hit in the face from behind and falling to the pavement, bleeding and unconscious. But the video that Trump shared showed only part of the incident. A longer video posted online shows that man, a Trump supporter, pushing a counter demonstrator to the ground, stomping on his head and balling one hand into a fist, shaking it at people. Police said they arrested four people at that scene, including one charged in the assault. The chief said that the incident remains under investigation and that there could soon be charges filed against the man who was hit. Number two, last week, as the White House digested news of a defeat at the polls, Trump administration officials were greeted with reports of more troubling setbacks on two fronts in their long-simmering conflict with Iran. First came a leaked U.N. document showing yet another sharp rise in Iran's stockpile of enriched uranium. Then, satellites tracked an Iranian oil tanker, the fourth in recent weeks, sailing toward the Persian Gulf after delivering Iranian petroleum products to Venezuela. Joby Warwick and Saud McKennett report that the first item was further proof of Iran's progress in amassing the fissile material used to make nuclear energy and potentially nuclear bombs. The second revealed gaping holes in Trump's strategy for stopping that advance. Over the summer, the administration made a big show of seizing cargo from several other tankers at sea in a bid to deter Iran from trying to sell its oil abroad. Yet Iran's oil trade, like its nuclear fuel output, is on the rise again. As the Trump administration enters its final months, it is imposing a flurry of new sanctions intended to squeeze Tehran economically. But by every measure, these efforts are faltering. The tankers that arrived in Venezuela in recent weeks are part of a flotilla of ships that's now moving a million barrels of discounted Iranian crude every day to eager customers customers from the Middle East to South America and Asia, including China. The volume represents a tenfold increase since the spring. Other countries, many of them scornful of Trump's unilateralism on Iran, are showing increasing reluctance to enforce restrictions, even as Iran embarks on the new expansion of its uranium stockpile. As a result, Trump, who pulled out of the Iranian nuclear deal, is going to leave President-elect Joe Biden with a crisis that's far worse than when he was elected four years ago. An Iranian government blowing past limits on its nuclear program while Washington's diplomatic and economic leverage steadily declines. The Biden administration is going to try to restore stability, not just in the Middle East, but also inside the Pentagon. A Republican-controlled Senate will probably result in more centrist nominees for top Pentagon positions, And our Missy Ryan reports from the Pentagon that leading the list of possible candidates for Secretary of Defense is Michelle Flournoy, who headed the department's policy shop under Barack Obama. Others who might be considered for SecDef include former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, who was the Pentagon's top lawyer under Obama and would become the first African-American defense secretary, as well as retired Admiral Bill McRaven, who served as head of U.S. Special Operations Command, when we took out Osama bin Laden, and has emerged in recent years as a vocal critic of Trump after a life as a Republican. Number three. Will black activists remain excited about Kamala Harris's ascent to the vice presidency? More and more of them are now worrying that the administration will not deliver much beyond her historic election. Their worries are underlined by ongoing uncertainty over what exactly Harris's portfolio will be in the Biden administration and how much freedom she will have to chart her own course on issues like racial justice and immigration. Chelsea Janes and Sean Sullivan report that Biden has not announced a portfolio for Harris the way that Biden handled the economic stimulus package for Obama. 
and Harris's allies are watching anxiously to see if she will be allowed to choose her top staffers or if Biden loyalists will be installed to work for her. So far, it's looking like Biden is exerting maximum control. Longtime White House watchers say that the most critical question in determining what kind of vice president Harris will be is whether she's allowed to assemble her own senior staff. During her presidential campaign, disagreements among Harris's aides often spilled into public view, prompting concerns in the party about her abilities to manage such a team. She's never had a large staff. But after dropping out, Harris slimmed down her operation as she competed to be Biden's running mate. One of Biden's conditions, though, for picking her was that he get veto power over her staffing choices. Finally, let's end on a positive note. SpaceX on Sunday launched four astronauts to the International Space Station in a spectacular evening liftoff that came days after the company's Dragon capsule became the first privately owned and operated spacecraft to be certified for human spaceflight by NASA. SpaceX earned that designation and the right to undertake what NASA hopes will become regular missions to the space station and back after it completed a test flight of two astronauts earlier this year. With the launch on Sunday, NASA took another step toward a new era in human spaceflight in which private companies partner with the government to build and design spacecraft and rockets. And it marked a coming-of-age moment for SpaceX, the California company founded by Elon Musk that was, until recently, viewed as a maverick startup. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, November 16th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.